The Cyblogs podcast is produced with the help of an AMP Do Your Thing scholarship. Go to doyourthing.co.nz to find out how AMP can help you do your thing. Coming up on the Cyblogs podcast, Google Earth version 2, the work underway to build richer digital representations of the world. The rise of the non-religious, we look at the latest trends out of the Australian census, and a medical gold mine using plant metabolites to create new drugs. Welcome to the Cyblogs podcast, episode 34 for Friday, June the 29th. I'm Peter Griffin, coming to you from the Science Media Center here in Wellington with that mix of science, news, and interviews to round out your week. You can find the podcast homepage at cyblogs.co.nz, which is also where you'll find the blogs of 30-odd scientists and science writers blogging about everything from forensics through to climate change. Check it out, cyblogs.co.nz, and you can stream the podcast from the site. Subscribe via iTunes, RSS, or Stitcher.com to get the Cyblogs podcast on your phone. Soon we'll be talking to the New Zealand co-author of a paper looking at the legacy of that great piece of free software, Google Earth, and what the future holds for the geospatial representation of data in general. But first up, our news wrap, where we take you through some of the big science stories that broke during the week. And joining me to discuss them is my colleague from the Science Media Centre, John Kerr. Okay, John, we're first looking at some interesting research that's come out in Lancet Infectious Diseases. Now, this is harking back to the swine flu pandemic of 2009. And at the time, the World Health Organization, when that pandemic ended, said they thought about 18,500 people had died in the pandemic. And that was based on lab tests that had been done in 74 countries or something like that. New research suggests that we've completely lowballed that figure, that the actual number of deaths from swine flu may have been as much as 15 times that amount, something like 284,000 people. Um, of course, I think no one was actually expecting that those were the only deaths that happened. Yeah. Uh, the World Health Organization would have been aware that they were underestimating it at the time, but this is the first real study to attempt to come up with a best guess, essentially, of how many people died internationally. And how are they doing it? They're using statistical models here. That's right. So they took data from uh, well-developed countries where most deaths would have been identified and recorded and tried to translate that data to other developing countries like uh, South Asia, uh, Africa, and also tried to look at the way that previous uh, influenza pandemics had spread in those countries and the mortality to get an idea of the the differences between countries um, because, of course, developing countries have less healthcare, poorer infrastructure to deal with these things, so you can't assume what happens in New Zealand is going to be exactly the same as what happens in, say, South Africa. That's right, and and they've also suggested in the paper that 51% of swine flu deaths occurred in Africa and Southeast Asia, which account collectively for only 38% of the world's population, so a really disproportionate amount of deaths in those areas that don't have the coverage, the access to good health care. That, that's right. Based on the, the data that they were using to, to estimate these outcomes, uh, Africa actually had the highest mortality, and this is the first study to really try and figure out how bad it was. And not only did they treat different parts of the world unequally, uh, this pandemic, but also the victims themselves in a demographic sense. So we had young people, children in particular, were, were um, disproportionately affected by swine flu. Less older people infected with swine flu as well. It wasn't too surprising this had been noticed um, in 2009 during the pandemic, but 
uh, this research makes it even clearer that that 80% of the deaths that occurred in people were people younger than 65 years. And this is unusual because uh, with normal sort of seasonal influenza, most of the deaths actually occur in the elderly. Uh, so this was something that, that was not expected from your average influenza. Obviously, this is pretty illuminating. What does it mean for the World Health Organization in planning for future pandemics? They obviously need to get into the developing world quickly in a pandemic to avoid the loss of life that we saw in 2009. That's right, and, and this sort of research can provide a, a guide for where to put their resources to, to do the most good. Uh, mo- moving on now to uh, some really interesting New Zealand research in the journal Science this week, and this is a group of GNS scientists who have been looking at the Alpine fault line. Four years of data here looking at 8,000 years of activity on the Alpine fault line. This research, uh, yeah, coming out in science today, really highlighted the regularity of earthquakes that happen on the Alpine Fault. Like you said, uh, over 8,000 years, they've, they've got data from every earthquake that happened, uh, 24 in total. And what's been really interesting is the time that, that lapsed between each rupture of the fault, each earthquake that happened, uh, has been surprisingly regular. Uh, on average, 330 years. Uh, there was a bit of a range there. Sometimes it was as short as... Uh, 100 years, sometimes up to 500 years, but the real average was was around 330 years, uh, and that's in contrast to a lot of other fault lines around the world where you see sort of quakes sporadically happening uh, with with no real pattern. Uh, the Alpine Fault seems to go off at, at least in seismological terms on a regular basis. And how how are they seeing this? Are they literally cutting down into the rock and and looking at how the rock is structured? Basically, a timeline back through the geological record. That's right, they've, they've drilled down into the ground and pulled up what they call sediment cores, so basically a, a, a pole of dirt, and by looking at the layers of that dirt, they can see into the past, essentially, and uh, through analysis of, of different cores, they've been able to estimate when earthquakes happened, uh, carbon dating the material in certain layers of dirt and things like that. So it's, it's provided an insight into the history of the Alpine Fault. Previously, they had, uh, I think, about 1,000 years' worth of data um, but this has really offered up a whole heap more information about the Alpine Fault and its history. And that's uh, allowed them, in a sense, to be able to look ahead. So the fact that the Alpine Fault goes off on this regular basis can give them an idea of when it's going to happen next. Right. And this is where it gets quite interesting and important for New Zealand, is that the researchers estimate that there's a 30% chance of the Alpine Fault rupturing in the next 50 years. Uh, the last time an earthquake happened was 295 years ago, and the exact average is 330 years for each quake. So, And this is a large magnitude quake as well. That's right. The researchers have estimated about uh, magnitude 8, but right. it could be a little bit more, could be a little bit less. Wow, okay. And have they given any indication why they think there is this regularity of quakes on the Alpine Fault? Well, the Alpine Fault is a very simple fault line uh, as far as fault lines go. Uh, other places in the world, they can get more complicated. There's several intersecting fault lines. Plates shift in ways that distribute the pressure on the fault line quite differently. 
but here in the South Island, it's it's very simple. It's isolated. There aren't a lot of fault lines sort mm. of shifting off from it to shift the load, if you will. So it's like a, a regular build-up and release of pressure. That's what they're seeing in the geological record. You don't have intersecting faults which are skewing the whole picture that you'd see in other parts of the world? No, that's, that's exactly it. Okay. And what do you think it's going to mean for our friends in Canterbury and in other parts of the South Island that uh, are in the shadow of the Alps? They're obviously pretty sensitive after the quakes that they've had. Do you think this is going to sort of put them further on edge, knowing that there's this risk that the big one, the Alpine Fault, could go in the next 50 years? It's it's worrying information, you're right there, but I think it's important for people to know. Uh, Christchurch in particular probably isn't at that higher risk of just the Alpine Fault rupturing. If it does trigger off other fault lines in the South Island, there, there could be an earthquake that would affect Christchurch, but... I don't think it would do a lot of damage uh, if it was just the Alpine Fault. The places that would be really hard hit, uh, you know, on the west coast, Greymouth, Westport, um, South Queenstown and yep. Swanaka, Queenstown. those sorts of places. Yeah. Uh, those areas, but they're not heavily built up um, and uh, with a good amount of civil defence and planning, good council efforts, um, hazard and risk can be minimised and mm. looking ahead to the possibility of a large quake on the Alpine Fault. Really good to see uh, science running some uh, cutting-edge New Zealand research, and uh, there's a link on the SciBlog website on the show notes to a Campbell Live piece with uh, Kelvin Berryman from GNS taking a reporter to the scene where they did the drilling and showing the cross-section of that 8,000-year record uh, from the rock. So thanks for that, John. Check out SciBlogs.co.nz for the show notes for those two stories, lots of articles and links on both of those. 20 years ago, before he became the vice president of the United States, Al Gore wrote a book called Earth in the Balance, in which he floated the concept of the digital Earth, a digital replica of the entire planet. The technology wasn't really there at the time to pull it off, but fast forward to 2005 and we saw the arrival of Google Earth, a free piece of software that allows people to zoom in on just about any area of the surface of the Earth to see high-resolution satellite imagery and mapping data. Then came the mashups, scientists, business people and enthusiastic amateurs layering on sets of data over Google Earth and Google Maps to give a visual representation of data in a geographical context. The possibilities now are really only limited by the data sets available. But Google Earth is seen now as very much version one. So much more is possible as we seek to develop a sort of virtual nervous system for the world, displaying not only current and historical data, but predicting future trends based on data fed into this virtual model. The International Society for Digital Earth is working towards that goal, and in September, the Digital Earth Summit will take place here in Wellington. Ahead of that, a group of researchers, including New Zealander Richard Simpson, have published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in which they look at the hurdles that still need to be overcome to build a true digital model of the Earth. Richard is a pioneer of the New Zealand computer graphics industry, a former Auckland City councillor, and one of the people behind 3D visualisation company Nextspace. Gore's book and then his speech obviously was, was a real rallying cry for the type of digital earth uh, concept, but really the game changer in terms of uh, practical application of it, Google Earth really was a bit of a, a game changer, wasn't it, in terms of getting access to a wide range of people on a, a universal set of tools. Just how important do you think was the arrival of Google Earth? Well, I think very important because certainly before Google Earth, I'd say the majority of people 
hadn't really experienced the use of geospatial technologies themselves. And I, I think that that sort of really brought it home and sort of allowed people to look at the world in a different way. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful interface. It's, it's very easy software to use. What were you using bef- before Google Earth came along in terms of geospatial information, layering on other sets of data onto geospatial software? Yeah. What was the, the sort of the big tools that were in play before Google Earth came but along? The ones that were before there, we sort of built our own, but it was, um, there were things like, for instance, Edigraph and Esri were the two major ones. Um, with Esri ESRI, that was set, set up by Jack Dangerman about 68, I think he did. Edigraph was set up about the same time. And again, it was started off as computer-aided mapping, as these things do, and uh, really it was adaption of computer-aided design technology or drafting technology of some, they called it CAM actually. And then from there, then it was sort of realized that if you put attribution to the data, so putting in you know, a spatial data linked to graphics, you get greater, greater use of that data. And then obviously from there, you're looking at uh, land information systems and then starting to get more and more towards what's known as geospatial information systems, uh, GIS. And uh, again, start to look at spatial interassociation of data, and uh, and then then really the next stage that goes beyond that is the big shift beyond sort of the the conventions of cartography to really where I think you know as you're saying before, Google Earth was one of the early early ones to get in that space. There's another company called GeoFusion that were around before Google Earth. Uh, when Google Earth was known as Keyhole, and it was set up by a guy called Michael Jones, and he was inspired by that paper of Al Gore's put out and uh, and sort of said, well, we'll have a bit of a go at building this thing. So they went off and sort of looked at it really from a tourism point of view to start off with and you know, presenting the news from different sort of places. And then one thing led to the next and then Google got hold of it and took it to the world. And who were the big early adopters of Google Earth back in 2005? Did it really start off in the scientific community in terms of layering data over the, um, the geographical mapping? Oh, not really. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, there was Blue Marble, which is the one that NASA had at the time. And, yeah, I mean, that, that's a lot more comprehensive than, say, what a Google Earth is. Uh, and again, this is what NASA was using to then starting to manage all their data in these tessellation engines they had. They, they would be putting, pulling the data in together for that. Right. But, you know, getting back to Google Earth, I think, you know, it's a ma- major excitement and it sort of has changed the way that you look at things. And again, I was saying earlier on, it's, it's sort of allowed to have that almost like a break from conventions. But as you can see in the paper that we put together, I mean, you know, Google Earth is very much like a little bit of a shortcut. Because it, it takes into some aspects of what was spoken about in the Gore paper, but there's still a, a long way yet to, to fulfill really what Gore's vision was. And this new paper that we've, we've put together is sort of putting the, uh, the horizon out a bit further. And, you know, one of the exciting things, and people can sort of, I think, grasp the idea is this, is that when you start managing information, well, most information we deal with is, is spatial information. And uh, if we think about this as being you know, three-dimensional information, it's putting a three-dimensional filing system together that's based upon a real-world coordinate system and putting all the, all the knowledge and the information that we have about the world into that. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot more sense to be going forward in that direction than to be putting things into what, what's probably could be described as a filing plant metaphor where the names of files and directories are, are still used today. Uh, this becomes a far better repository for managing information and collaborating with people, and then we can then sort of put knowledge. And you think of all the PhDs and, and theses that you know, research that's undertaken around the world. If you can publish that directly into these sort of models, and then people can build upon, upon each other, you then have something that's a little bit like what um, the Human Genome Project was to our DNA, 
you know, digital Earth becomes that to, to our, our planet, and that becomes this common repository where science can be debated, science can be brought forward, and uh, it can then sort of interface with, with day-to-day things like planning and uh, you know, putting you know, sewer pipes and all sorts of things like that. You can have this sort of you know, you know, complete knowledge of the, of the world. Yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned the Human Genome Project because that was essentially a big open source project, which Google Earth is to a large extent as well. I suppose um, what you're suggesting there, this sort of um, filing system for all the world's knowledge that can be overlaid in a geographical sense, it's essential really to have this as an open platform, sort of the way that, that Google Earth has pioneered. Oh, absolutely, yes. And, you know, it's, I think we're in the early stages of it now. And as you were saying, that it's, it's, it's a matter of, you know, going through, through and there'll be a number of iterations yet to come. But, you know, if you, if you trace it all back, I mean, I, I like to put Ptolemy up as the godfather of digital earth. He was an Egyptian who wrote in Greek, but he was a Roman citizen back in about 200 AD. And Ptolemy effectively came up with what, was, what became known as geography. And he, was, he, he had a great quote out of his, I can't remember the name of it in Latin, but it was this, uh, to present the known world as one and continuous and to describe its nature and position. And I think it's a great quote because when you look at sort of the challenges that we face today, in fact, in our lifetimes, we'll probably be the first generation that will actually start realising, you know, Ptolemy's quote to say, see the world as one and continuous in the scrub stage position. I mean, you can sort of see putting a Google Earth on steroids and starting to bring in technologies like augmented reality and everything else and starting to provide a continuum between a, a personalised view and then a, a providence, you know, a godlike view of the world. Um, we can then start citizening this this way, and this is certainly the the form in which this will be achieved. And this, again, is is why I think Digital Earth becomes a really significant initiative. Right. You you say in the paper, not all data are equal. There's so much data, sets of data out there, some from central government, local government, data all over the the place. I suppose, you know, even looking at New Zealand, there's so many sets of data not necessarily all particularly complementary. Is the huge bulk of the work that's going to be required to be done, harmonising all these sets of data that we have to get, you know, this uh, vision that Gore had of this uh, magic carpet ride across the earth where you see all sorts of sets of data that give you a a full picture of the, say, the health of a city or the health of a country? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as you start bringing those together, you can start seeing patterns. And, you know, if you can see, for instance, you've got a a terrain model that shows the sort of three-dimensional surface and you've got the rock that goes underneath it. When you look at the soil types, when you're looking at the water table, and you start looking at, you know, you can then infer other sorts of information, like looking at susceptibility of erosion to places and all sorts of things you could put buildings in, start looking at sort of the rising damp that goes into buildings. And so you suddenly have this sort of rich vocabulary that you can actually describe situations far better and uh, far more adequately than, than they've ever been discussed, described before. Google Earth is, is good at giving you a, a picture of things as they currently are, a bit more limited on historical um, data, but really, I, I suppose, the, the really fascinating thing for, for consumers, but also useful thing for, for governments and agencies, and that is um, using data to try and predict future trends. And I know, I think the European Union is looking at a massive project, which is really like a what they ultimately want it to be is a model for the world where they put in all these inputs, everything from financial markets to flu data, like Google's doing with flu trends, to, to yep. try and predict the spread of disease and even the collapse of markets and things such as civil war as well. That's the ultimate goal, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, well, that is. I mean, there's one that Bob Bishop's working on. He was the former CEO of Silicon Graphics, and he's got a, a, a big initiative, it sounds like what you're talking about there. 
But yeah, the Japanese have been doing some amazing things too with the a group that's involved with the Digital Earth. It's the Earth Simulator in Japan out of Yokohama. And they've been doing some interesting work, which is probably actually relevant to Christchurch, but they're you know, looking after the Kobe earthquake, going back and just saying, well, how much data do we, do we really need to have so we can start accurately predicting the impact of, of earthquakes? And, and then when you start looking at, you know, obviously with New Zealand, with our second largest city being Christchurch, that's you know, having to be rebuilt. When we, we look at planning today, it's very much like what medicine was like in the medieval era, where you suddenly have these, these glass jars on people's skin with wasps in it, maybe stinging the poor patient, you know, expecting that to cure rheumatoid arthritis or something else like that. A lot of our planning is extremely superficial and we've got these sort of markers and crumbs that are sort of drawing onto maps that are sort of showing different things going forward there. If you look at a digital earth, you could then start sort of putting all those sort of layers of rock and all the sort of the, the knowledge about the atmospherics and everything else that's going forward, looking at the inundation modeling, you know, sea level rise, all these other different sort of factors there. So it's looking at these dynamic systems. So it's almost like it's thinking about what happened to medicine when Harvey, you know, discovered that blood circulated and you had the endocrine systems and everything else that were put into place. Suddenly with, with a, a digital earth, you can then start sort of looking at all these other different systems and how they interoperate with each other. And uh, we've actually sort of become enlightened. And, uh, and I think this is not too far from, from, um, you know, from where we are today. You talk about the, the big enablers that really made Google Earth and some of the similar systems popular and accessible things like 3D technology was integral to it that the bandwidth that was required if you look at you know I'm just amazed every time I zoom in on my iPad screen on, on this retina display to see this beautiful high resolution image of a part yeah. of the earth's surface I mean the, the work that went into doing that uh, must have been staggering and then of course open data access what do you think are the, are the next the things that will need to happen to spur the development of, um, for want of a better phrase, Google Earth 2? I think one aspect that Google Earth doesn't affect, you know, it's been missing out of the whole vocabulary really is looking at, you know, starting to deal with the uh, evidential management of the data sets that go into it. So what we talk about is provenance, you know, where you're mm. starting to deal with, you know, like when you're doing a family tree structure, you, you suddenly miss one of your forebears birth certificates and you can't find their marriage certificate and various things that becomes fairly dubious where, 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 where your ancestry line goes to. And so that can be applied to all sorts of things that relate to the planet and, and as we start to deal with these three-dimensional data sets, you just can't simply rubber sheet this data together and make it fit because when you start to deal with 3D, it becomes extraordinarily sort of complex to be moving data and how it all inter-associates together. So, the whole, the first challenge I think would be representation, just to sort of find, you know, ways to express the infinite um, complexity of the geographical world in the sort of binary alphabet of the computer, and uh, and allow that sort of you know, dynamism to take place. The uncertainty thing, which is probably tied in with that, is looking at the, um, you know, the evidential management and sort of that certainty and the trust that you can have the data. And some work that we did with uh, the city of Melbourne. Uh, was looking at where the rock was underneath the city. So we start off with the first pass, which is like an algorithmic pass uh, with geomorphology. So we say, well, the rock under the tops of the hills is going to be closer to the surface than it is in the valleys because you're going to have alluvial settlement in the valleys. And on the north side, the rock's going to be like to be a bit more closer than, than on the south side because of all the expansion and contraction that, that takes place with the sun and the sky. So, and you sort of get, start putting all these things in. So this is a geomorphologist sort of gives you an algorithm that you go forward and see us through the rock. And the next thing you go forward and you get all the boreholes and the um, things that people have got in their, their notebooks and their spreadsheets. 
and you put the boreholes into it, that's a greater certainty that, that you then add into it. Then we get ground penetrating radar and everything else. So we're moving towards this sort of infinite goal of getting it to become something that you can blur the physical and digital world together and it becomes one. But you're sort of moving towards that and so starting to have the sort of the methods that can start managing that. Again, this is another another paradigm beyond sort of where we are today with the, the Google Earth. And one of the things is actually just supporting a, a three-dimensional metaphor, which which is really demanding for rich data, is that you can then sort of then easily produce the 2D from that, and you can start producing some of these other infographics that can come from that. So I think that there's going to be you know, a lot of really interesting work that's that's providing multi multi metaphor views into into these very large you know, vast data sets. Okay. The, the other one is, uh, I think, simulation. This is some other work that we've been doing at Next Space is that when you're starting to model information in the third dimension, you can then publish it out to simulations. I mentioned inundation modeling, but you've got to manage different ontologies. Um, you know, look at economic modeling or social deprivation, other things like that. And so having it managed in a, in a common repository that you've been pushing it through into different simulators is going to be important. And you've been doing a lot of work with um, Auckland City Council as well, um, sort of building a, a platform there where you could feed in everything from, you know, sort of resource consent information through to the the availability and status of various city services. Is, is there appetite for for this beyond Auckland? Can can you see this happening? This type of thing happening at a at a national scale? Is there sort of interest in it at that scale? Starting to be. It's just really trying to get those brave Indians jumping out who are going to have their arrows in the front of the chest rather than the back of it. And it's getting the, these sort of projects sort of moving forward. And again, you know, prototyping is a very good way to do it. But, you know, we still don't have a city yet that's, that says, right, yes, we want to become a, a digital city and, and be sort of exemplar. But, you know, from a New Zealand Inc. point of view, what, what it becomes is that, you know, I think Digital Earth will be a trillion dollar yeah, and yeah, it's going to be a massive, big initiative in terms of what's going forward and the opportunities to be building. Say, for instance, you know, we could get something going for Auckland or Christchurch, whatever it is. It becomes an ecology of technology, digital content, policy, and also research. And New Zealand does that better than anywhere else in the world. We're just such a fat government government structure. We've got a very high uptake of technology, so we could do it better than we could be first to doing that. And then you could take that to the 10,000 other cities around the world and it would create some, a business, an industry that's going to be much bigger than Fonterra. And so, you know, it makes sense for New Zealand to not only just to solve the problems of the cities we have today, and obviously Christchurch and the earthquakes is a pretty big problem to solve, but um, it becomes something that we can sort of take to the rest of the world and, and start building creative industries around it. Yeah, and, and what, what would you like to see come out of the Digital Earth Summit here in Wellington? Well, I'd like to see New Zealand, first of all, set up a centre of sustainability or, or centre for digital earth. You know, China's just opened a, a massive big uh, centre of earth observation, digital earth in Beijing with the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Other countries are doing this, and it'd be nice to think that New Zealand could go forward and, and put together a research centre that that could be sort of really trying to sort of then grab that um, thought leadership within New Zealand. The Australian Census data was released this week, providing an up-to-date snapshot of Australia and how the country's demographic makeup is changing. The census shows that the number of Australians nominating no religion on their census form has increased substantially to become the number two option nationally and the number one option in five of eight states and capital cities. Ken Parrott is a cyblogger. His open parachute blog deals with all sorts of science-related things, but one area of particular interest for Ken is religion. 
I spoke to him about the Australian census data and asked him what might be behind the increase in those who profess to having no religion. So, Ken, you've been looking at some of the uh, statistics that are coming out of the Australian census. This is the first tranche of data that's coming out. This is the 2011 census. And one of the most interesting things, I think, from the census is comparing 2011 to 2006, the change in people who identify themselves as being religious uh, or non-religious. The percentage of people claiming no religion has risen from 18.7% to 22.3%. What do you think is driving it, Ken? I mean, that trend is occurring um, in New Zealand, it's occurring in the States as well. And, I mean, I don't think you can say it's just people suddenly deciding to change their ideology. I think it's possibly got more to do with people um, admitting their ideology, coming out, as it were. It's, it has become a bit more respectable to actually tick that box, mm. um, whereas in the past people may have ticked a religion. Right. I know, looking back at my own family, my mother, when she went to hospital, was a CV, and my father had put down on some documents Presbyterian, but we were no religion. And I think it's just that particularly younger people today are more prepared to say no religion. Right. And does it break down in, in the figures, Ken? Do people identify themselves as, as atheists there? Is that a subsection of the, of the no religion? Whereas with the census questions, for the, the, say the Christian religion, they will, break, they will give you a number of opportunities and you can write in your own one. In the case of no religion, you either just took no religion or you can write something in and they then put it all into the no religion box. So overall, how does it look? Catholicism is still the biggest religion? In Australia, yeah. It's, um, it's, well, it's dropped from 25.8 to 25.3. Mm-hmm. And no religion is second. And then Anglicans at 17%. And then beyond that, we've got um, Buddhism and uh, some of the other uh, religions, smaller percentages, but growing as well. Is that a reflection of demographic change in Australia, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think as in New Zealand, the same things happen here. The religions which have grown have been um, Hindu, uh, Buddhist and Islam. And uh, I think that's due to immigration. And I suppose this has implications for uh, for education, for, for for children, there are a lot of schools that are r- religious schools. You know, the the Catholics have them, the uh, the Anglicans have them, the Chinese increasingly have them. There are J- Jewish schools as well. I suppose we'll potentially start to see uh, some of these uh, religions that are, are smaller communities at the moment, but are increasing in size. They may choose to create their own schools that are based uh, on religious teaching as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's certainly happening. In Europe, well, in Britain anyway, you know, it's been a big issue there that, um, particularly with teaching creationism, some of the Islamic schools have um, made themselves unpopular with that. And, um, you know, I think that's added to the whole um, multicultural argument in Europe. Our census was delayed as a result of the Christchurch earthquake. Uh, how did it break down in terms of religion versus no religion and the various religions in our last census? The um, the Christian religion was still the greatest, but it had dropped. Depends which figures you look at, because it had dropped to just over 50% in the last census. But what I found in looking at the figures is that uh, because you get the choice of several Christian religions, some people doubled up. Uh, I mean, I don't mean intentionally, they're not 
brought into figures, but I know my brother used to go to two churches and he would have put two ticks down. Um, and when you when you look at that, the uh, take out the double dipping, the Christians are down to 49.5% in 2006. No religion had come up to about 34%. Um, and that's steadily, it's been steadily cl- uh, climbing since the last 24 years. So this is pretty much mirrored in census data all over the world, is that the, the proportion of the population claiming no religion is, is gradually rising? If you look at America where religion is very strong and the no religious group is down about 15% or so. You see a small trend going on there is sort of um, more people are prepared to say they're not religious. But the interesting thing is that amongst the young people that below 29 years old, 18 to 29, there's been a really sharp increase in the year 2000. It was about uh, 15% saying that they um, already said no religion. Now it's up over 30. And most of that increase is just happened in the last um, seven or eight years, since 2005. So there seems to be something quite, in America anyway, quite sharply happening there. And I suspect it's just, just more that it's become more acceptable to say that you don't have a belief. Whereas with the older age groups, there is just a general trend, there's no, no sharp increase. And it's been sort of a, a bit of a mainstreaming, really, of discussion about atheism and popularised by people like Hitchens and, Daw- and Dawkins and that. We sort of are having these discussions about theology that we probably weren't so mainstream and as, as prominent on the internet as they would have been 10 or 15 years ago. It seems rather than those people like Dawkins and Hitchens creating the change, they've actually responded to an underlying change, which his, his uh, publishers have picked up. You know, some people talk about terrorist attacks in New York in 2001 as, as promoting a more critical assessment of religion. I, I don't know whether that in itself is the reason, but um, there does seem to have been a growing acceptability to publicly discuss these sort of issues. I suppose you know some uh, sort of more traditional parents will will look at at this with a bit of concern, especially as um, younger people in the census are declaring no religion. Um, traditionally, uh, religious studies have have formed the basis of uh, what kids learn about morality and that sort of thing. What do you think is replacing this? If kids aren't going to Bible school, if they're not following the teachings of the Bible of um, religious teachers, where are they getting the, the, the sort of the, the moral foundation in their in their learnings as young people? Yeah, well, that interests me quite a bit. I've been sort of blogging about that quite a bit and, and um, thinking about how we develop our mor- morality. And, and uh, so I think it's certainly true that religion as a source of morality has declined, but there still seems to be a perception that religion has a special role. In Britain, when they did a survey recently, they found that the largest group of people who declared themselves Christians in that census understood Christian to mean they were good people, you know. So there is this identity. But we do have, in our secular schools, we do have a curriculum which includes values. And personally, I feel that we get our, our values from the wider culture, I mean, from literature, TV. If we look at things like how the attitude towards women and work has changed over my lifetime or the attitude towards homosexuals, I think um, popular culture, the, the literature, films, TV have played a big role. There's a lot of work that can be done in, in identifying how 
our culture and our global culture affects our moral outlook and how that affects the way it changes too. I think it's a fascinating area. Chemicals found in the plant world have been exploited by human cultures for thousands of years in order to prevent pain, induce pleasures or cure diseases. In fact, approximately two-thirds of the drugs discovered just in the past 25 years have originated from metabolites or small molecules found in nature. But only a small fraction of plant metabolic processes have ever been explored for the production of new medicines or products relating to human health. Scientists say we've just seen the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the potential of nature to serve up useful molecules that could be used in drugs. Vincenzo De Luca is Professor of Biological Sciences at Brock University in Ontario, Canada. In a perspectives piece published today in the journal Science, he explores the potential he believes exists in nature to deliver up more beneficial drugs and treatments. He was interviewed for the Science Journal podcast. For most of human history, all drugs were natural. For example, human ancestors discovered that chinchona bark cured intermittent fevers, that ergot triggered abortions in farm animals, or that tea leaves awakened and energized individuals. Throughout the 20th century, the trend has been to produce single-ingredient drugs from natural extracts, and inevitably these were replaced by synthetic molecules if it was possible to do this cheaply. These single-ingredient drugs are those that are predominantly used in wealthy societies around the planet. In developing countries where about 80% of the world population lives, they rely primarily on these traditional ethno-botanical remedies for some of the diseases that they have. And this kind of plant-based medicine is tied up with metabolites in these plants. And could you describe what exactly are plant metabolites? The term metabolite is usually restricted to small molecules that are found in living systems. They are usually organic compounds. For example, glucose is a six-carbon molecule that when broken down to its six single-unit carbon dioxide components using a process that generates the energy that's required to drive biological processes and, in fact, life itself. That's an example of a metabolite. Glucose is classified as a primary metabolite since it's important for performing primary housekeeping processes common to all living organisms, including plants. In contrast, other chemical entities that are responsible for particular biological activities such as their toxicity, inhibition, or their stimulation of cellular processes may make them valuable for medicinal uses. These small organic molecules have a more restricted distribution, and they're often made in a limited number of plant species, mm -hmm. a genus, a single family, or in a few plant families. The fact that most individual molecules are restricted in their distribution to particular taxonomic groups has led to their traditional classification as secondary or more recently special metabolites. So can you give us an example of the differences between these chemicals, between the ones found in plants and the chemicals we can synthesize in the lab? Well, about two-thirds of the new drugs that were discovered in the past 25 years really originated from the discovery of particular secondary metabolites derived from nature. The success of nature to give us these new drugs seems to be attributed to the remarkable structural complexity of molecules that we find inside these living organisms. 
they have an average of 6.2 chiral centers per molecule as compared to an average of 0.4 chiral centers that are found in the large combinatorial libraries that were produced by chemists over the last 20 years or so. Can you describe what a chiral center is? A chiral center is defined as a carbon atom associated with four different atoms so that their mirror images cannot be superimposed. So these chemically complex molecules are really very difficult to make. Why does it matter if we accidentally have the mirror image of the chemical we're trying to make? Remarkably, the, the chiral center is really important because if you have one type of chirality, you produce a molecule that may be totally ineffective or inactive in terms of the target that it's affecting. And therefore, the need to produce molecules with the appropriate chirality that gives them their biological reactivity is essential for creating the drug of interest. And this is something that is extremely difficult to do. It's very easy for living organisms to do because they have biocatalysts that act as scaffolds to produce the molecule with the right orientation. So one of the things that's been happening is chemists have been actually turning to enzymes from plants or other organisms to actually facilitate performance of the actual chiral reaction. And this is an area that's going to be very actively exploited in the future because of the uh, fact that these enzyme reactions can be taking place in aqueous solutions. The process is much greener than synthetic organic chemistry approaches. So that would be an example of using plants or microbes as uh, chemical factories. Well, this is why plants are really the source of such biodiversity that your chances of identifying a biologically relevant molecule are greatly increased over the combinatorial approaches that have been tried now for the last 20 or so years and have not been terribly successful in creating or discovering new drugs. And so it tells us that plants and other organisms are going to continue to be very important in the discovery of new drugs. Could you describe some of the new ways of synthesizing drugs from plants? The trend today really involves the identification of biosynthetic pathways and trying to harvest all the genes involved in a relevant pathway and then transferring the pathway from the plant of origin to a host that may be an industrial bacterial strain, a yeast strain, or maybe even another plant. Now, in the past, the identification of pathways was kind of slow and tedious. It involved protein purification, and once protein was pure, sequencing of the protein and going backward with that to identify the gene itself, followed by verification of gene function by expression in microbial hosts to show the biochemical reaction. If we look at the important biosynthetic pathways, for example, the biosynthesis of the anti-cancer agent, vimblastine, a number of genes in those pathways have been identified, but many more remain to be identified in order to have the whole pathway. Much of the morphine pathway is known. The identification of those genes has taken 20, 25 years of hard work by biochemists. And while this has yielded information on sequences and the development of homology-based cloning approaches, this is still relatively slow. And one way that 
this is being improved is the fact that we have large-scale, inexpensive sequencing technologies that have appeared in the last five to six years. We do very large amounts of sequencing to obtain transcriptomes, and all that data is integrated into databases for searching for relevant gene sequences or relevant candidate gene sequences. I guess a lot of this research really depends on there being plant biodiversity, and that's really in some danger right now. Could you talk a little about that? Well, indeed, one of the important problems that we face is what are we doing to the uh, not only the plant biodiversity, but all the organisms on the planet are being modified to some extent in terms of which ones are disappearing from the planet forever. And, of course, one could say, well, why don't we sequence them all, right? Mm-hmm. That, that way, even if we lose them, we have the genetic information. In fact, there's some level of truth to if you're simply gathering information, but we don't know what those organisms are going to do in, in the future and how they might help the planet or ourselves if they were to disappear. This is really important, for example, if an important biosynthetic pathway is within an endangered plant species. If there's a medicine in that endangered plant species, the risks are that the plant species will disappear because of over-harvesting. And the mobilization of these biosynthetic pathways to a common system like tobacco or yeast or microorganism means that you don't have to harvest the plant and therefore the pressure to eliminate it because of the needs of the medicines have disappeared. Vincenzo De Luca, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. That's Vincenzo De Luca there on the Science Journal podcast. And that's our show. Check out the show notes at cyblogs.co.nz where you'll find links and more information about this week's guests and their work. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash cyblogs. On Twitter, cyblogsnz is our handle. And drop us a line via the site. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in next Friday for more science news and views with a distinctly Kiwi spin. Till then, goodbye. 